Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, what do we know about the health effects of marijuana? So the report has 100 conclusions, of which only five uh, are ones that the committee felt secure enough uh, to say that they really thought the results were solid. A new report reveals there's still much we need to learn, and we'll speak with one of the authors who's calling for more research into marijuana use. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, January 19th, 2017, and I'm Amy Monomiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. This week we're focusing on a new report which is calling for more research on the positive and negative health effects of marijuana. A committee convened by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine poured over 10,000 studies and found that the current body of research doesn't provide much clear guidance into which groups may benefit or be harmed by marijuana use or on the effects of different dosages or methods of ingesting the drug. The report comes as more states approve medicinal or recreational use of the drug. In all, 28 states plus the District of Columbia allow some use of marijuana. But federal regulations make it difficult to conduct research. We spoke with Marie McCormick, Summer and Esther Feldberg Professor of Maternal and Child Health at the Harvard Chan School. She led the committee and talked about some of the key findings as well as the need for more research. And before we play the interview, just to note that the report authors decided to use the word cannabis, which is the name of the plant from which marijuana is derived. And I started my conversation by asking McCormick to explain why this committee decided to look through the existing research surrounding cannabis. The, the National Academy of Science was set up actually um, in 1863 by Abraham Lincoln to provide objective uh, scientific evidence to the government and to other agencies. And so the way the academies work is that someone comes to them and they want a project done. In this instance, uh, there were several states plus several federal agencies uh, that approached the academy to do a comprehensive report on the health effects of cannabis, in large part um, updating previous reports from the academy, but also in anticipation of the changes in many states uh, as cannabis is either legalized for recreational purposes mm -hmm. or for medicinal purposes. And so they wanted the, a committee to pull all of this information together. The committee consisted of 16 people with varying degrees of expertise, not only in cannabis itself, but the various health conditions that would be encountered as we went through our report. Um, as you can, the first report actually done by the National Academies on Cannabis was in 1982, and the last one was in 1999, but that focused primarily on uh, medical uses of marijuana and not the broader uh, scope of its effects on health. So to do this, we started, uh, first of all, to search for systematic reviews, which are very rigorous summaries of the literature done under very tight protocols. Where those were not available for the topics we wanted to look, we then went to the primary literature. And as the press release said, we went through 10,000 articles. Um, for those of you who have never done this, um, I can tell you that the general rule of thumb is that you get about 10% that are actually informative. Mm -hmm. So you can go through the rest of it pretty quickly. In order to do its um, task, the uh, committee decided on 11 topics, I believe that's correct, um, both health problems that might be affected by uh, cannabis as well as its therapeutic uses mm -hmm. and put it in that, that framework. And also to put some, some boundaries on the scope, 
um, we were limited our scope only to human studies, so we did not look at basic science or animal studies that may have contributed. We also looked only at the health endpoints that we were interested in and not intervening endpoints. So, for example, we didn't look at whether cannabis increased blood pressure or whether you could see changes on uh, MRIs. Uh, we were looking really at specific health outcomes. So the report has 100 conclusions, of which um, only five uh, are ones that the committee felt secure enough uh, to say that they really thought the results were, 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 were solid. Um, among the therapeutic uses, we found that uh, cannab cannabis or cannabinoids, which are synthetic products that mimic uh, cannabis uh, compounds, uh, are uh, effective in reducing, in reducing the symptoms of chronic pain, uh, the symptoms of muscle spasm in individuals with multiple sclerosis, and the nausea and vomiting associated with cancer chemotherapy. Uh, use of cannabis and almost exclusively smoked cannabis is associated with lower birth weight if the pregnant woman smokes during pregnancy, um, and is also associated with some increase in um, psychoses, although it's not clear whether the psychosis antecedent the use of cannabis or not. While there are certainly other findings um, in the report, such as uh, acute cannabis use before driving increases the risk of, of accidents, um, the studies are insufficient to really tease out the specific effect of cannabis versus uh, other factors. For example, um, people who are likely to use cannabis are young males and likely using other substances, hence the, the um, association with automobile accidents. Um, so it's actually this, this polyuse, for example, it is very difficult in the studies to disentangle the use of cannabis and smoking cigarettes, for example, mm -hmm. and other drug use. So the, the literature is actually, although there's a fair bit of it, quite murky in terms of being able to isolate the effects of cannabis per se. And so following up on that with kind of the, the this, this small number of kind of conclusive statements that you can make, I guess, so what would be some of the biggest, and I think you touched on there, but what would be some of the biggest unanswered questions that, that maybe we still have surrounding cannabis and cannabis use? Um, I can speak more specifically to um, the maternal and maternal use, pregnancy use, um, there are only two studies, longitudinal studies, for example, that look at the effect of prenatal exposure to cannabis and later child outcomes. Those studies were started in the 1980s uh, when the concentration of tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, in um, cannabis was somewhere in the order of about 4%. It's now upwards of 12 and 13%. Uh, so we're talking about relatively low-dose cannabis. Um, and so we, we honestly don't know what the longer-term effects would be. And even though these studies were done as well as they could be done in the 1980s, they clearly don't have the sophistication of both statistical and assessment techniques that we have now. I think, though, when, as we went through this, and the committee was impressed by how little that we, we do know, and in fact wrote a chapter on the, both the barriers and what kind of research is needed. Um, what, for example, in comparison to alcohol, we know we have these questions you can ask, how many drinks did you take of wine, beer, whatever, we get a good sense of what the alcohol content is. We have uh, 
measures against that against blood alcohol, and we actually have standards by which we say at a blood alcohol above such, you're impaired. We have none of that with cannabis, okay? We have, there are not standard questions that can be asked. Um, there's no, if you look at the literature, no standard frequency at which they're asked or how, what depth. We actually don't know the connection between some of these uh, questions and blood or urine levels of THC, and we don't actually know at what point you see impairment. Um, <clears throat> so we don't have any of these tools, and that's why one of the recommendations is that various federal agencies should sit down and set up standards uh, by which cannabis research can be done so that we can get comparability across time and across studies. I would also point out that um, most of the literature is on either synthetic cannabinoids, particularly for the therapeutic literature, or um, smoking. There is virtually nothing on the current modes of administration, such as edibles, vaping, dabbing, oils, <laughs> um, all of which language I did not know <laughs> eight <laughs> months ago. <laughs> um, so there needs to be a rapid expansion to catch up with uh, what the current state of state is in terms of both access to cannabis and its various its various forms. And so I want to talk more about that, the, the barriers to research, but I guess maybe kind of just stepping back for some background. So you mentioned that you went through 10,000, I think it was 10,000 articles. Is that a large number? Or is that a small number? How, how would that maybe compare to the, the body of research maybe in another area? Like, can you, can you give some perspective on that 10,000 articles figure for, for people who kind of aren't familiar with this? Um, it certainly is a large number. Um, it would certainly be larger than anything in my field of research. Um, but you have to understand when you do w how this is done is that basically the medical librarian sets out all the particular search terms that could possibly relate to the topic. Um, there, is, there are some filters involved, um, but they're not very specific. And so what you get is it actually the first pass was 24,000 articles. <laughs> um, then applying some filters, we got it down to 10,000. But when you, when you go through that, you rapidly find out that, for example, in the, the uh, pregnancy exposure area, there was only one systematic review. So of all those articles that we saw, there was only one systematic review. There were some what are called narrative reviews, which are experts who write uh, narratively about this, but not under as rigorous as systematic reviews. And then when you began looking at the articles, you rapidly discovered that animal studies were still included that there were still these intermediate outcomes, uh, that there were still basic science studies, laboratory studies included. And so when you go through, you, you rapidly come, rapidly wean down um, to the informative studies. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, we had some, someone went through, actually two people went through all of those articles uh, because in order to rule it in or out, it had to be a dual process. And so let's talk about the, the, the kind of need for more research because I guess I'd be interested to hear you talk about what, what have been some of the barriers um, to research around cannabis in the past. And then kind of the follow-up to that is what could be uh, done in the future to, to address some of those barriers. The barriers in the past include, one, that cannabis is considered a Schedule One drug. A Schedule One drug in FDA terms is that it is highly addictive with no known therapeutic uses which again sets up an incredible number of regulatory hoops mm -hmm. for anybody who wants to investigate it. Not only do they have to go through human subjects committees, but they also have to go through drug regulation hoops. 
Um, so it, it sets up barriers uh, in terms of how long it takes to get the studies up and running. Secondly, in terms of research-grade uh, cannabis, there's only one university in the country that provides it, the University of Mississippi. Uh, and that is not necessarily in the various concentrations to which are now cannabis products are now available. So again, you can only go to one place to get it. So that, those are probably the two major ones in terms of access to actually accessing the material, particularly accessing the material with, for current use. So to, to follow up on the second point, so if I wanted to do a study on the effects of cannabis, whatever I was looking at, I would have to go to the University of Mississippi, and they produce a specific strain that's pr produced just for research purposes? Yeah. Okay. I, I want to say yeah. that uh, NIDA, the National Institute, uh, the yeah, National Institute of Drug Abuse, is trying to expand this. So mm. they're aware of the problem. They are trying to expand mm. the availability uh, various components for study. So th there is some movement on that scale. I'd be interested in your perspective as someone who's kind of, you know, mentioned this, you know, looking at it from an evidence-based, not an anecdotal base. And are you concerned at all that states have kind of, they're passing laws, they're, they're, they're making changes to laws regarding cannabis use without having a research base? Like, is that kind of a dangerous area to get into it on? And again, I know you didn't get into policy, but I'd just it'd be interested yeah, in your perspective. Yeah, and we certainly didn't review the laws. Um, some states are more systematic than others. Um, for example, Colorado has actually prepared themselves quite a, uh, quite a lengthy review of what they thought the effects were. So I think, uh, and there was another state whose name I'm blocking at the moment, also had some sort of review. So I think that the states are not uh, unaware that they need an evidence base for their policies. But on the other hand, they did not have the resources to do the kind of um, systematic and very comprehensive review uh, and their approaches were different than the one we took in terms of looking at the evidence. And just as, as a last question, talk more about, I guess, the importance of kind of separating anecdotes from evidence, because I'm guessing there are always going to people who have had a certain outcome or have seen certain success from a cannabis-related therapy, but that doesn't maybe necessarily mean that that's the best on like a broad scale. So can you talk about a little bit of that distinction between like anecdote and evidence a little bit more? Sure. Um, people may have had various exper individual experiences, um, but I can say in terms of the therapeutic use, what you'd like to know is it does it work generally? That is, you take people in, you put them in a randomized trial, and you see which proportion benefit or don't benefit. Mm -hmm. And that gives you some sense of its therapeutic potential. Um, you would also have characteristics of the people who used it, so that might be able to further in understand who might benefit. In terms of the sort of recreational exposure or long-term exposure, there are all sorts of environmental characteristics um, that are uncontrolled for. So for example, in the studies I mentioned earlier, the longitudinal studies of perinatal exposure, uh, it is clear that the youth who were exposed in pregnancy were more likely to take up smoking and more likely to take up uh, cannabis use. However, is that because they were exposed in utero or because they're growing up in a milieu in which a woman who smoked during pregnancy is, is a very different family mm. um, than the one who didn't? Um, or uh, is there either a genetic or some kind of familial uh, tendency that makes it for both? So those kinds of factors make it very difficult to sort out what the, the individual experience is 
from what the population experience might be. That was our conversation with Marie McCormick about a new report on the health effects of marijuana. If you'd like to learn more about the report and its findings, just head to our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that's all for this week's episode. Coming up next week, the new survey that's painting a more detailed picture of gun ownership in America. Until then, I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Montemiro. A reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you're a fan, please subscribe and leave a review.